everybody, welcome back to another episode of On The Mix. I'm your host, Lindsay, and today is going to be a little bit of a different episode because I'm sure, as maybe some of you have heard recently in the news, Mark Lanigan, who was the singer of The Screaming Trees, and he was also an ex-member of Queens of the Stone Age, he died um, a couple of days ago. I knew about Mark Lanigan, I knew about The Screaming Trees, and it just... I don't know. I mean, I didn't really know a whole lot about their story and their and even his background, to be honest. I didn't know that there was so much pain um, and addiction in his background. I wasn't as familiar with the Screaming Trees as I was with the other grunge bands. But um, when I heard of his death, I was shocked because, I don't know, I mean, it really is. Grunge is really uh, dying out. You know, Eddie Vedder is really, from what I can recall, one of the only ones that's kind of left. But Mark Lanigan was from, you know, Washington, the state where it all happened. So very sad. I remember when uh, the Museum of Pop Culture in Seattle, they did a benefit for Alice in Chains. They were, I think, I think the thing was they got an award for a founding artist. And Mark Lanigan was one of the artists that came on to cover an Alice in Chains song. He covered Nutshell, and I thought it was so so beautiful, so haunting. And his voice truly is so like out of this world, nothing that I've ever heard before. And I don't know, it's it's like, it's hard to come by another singer like him. He's very haunting. I'm going to be doing this episode a little different. I just wanted to kind of do a remembrance piece about Mark Lanigan, not necessarily about the Screaming Trees, but just kind of more about who he was and the things that he did in his life. And everything that he's accomplished, and um, things like that. So I hope you guys will follow me along on this episode. We're going to start with his background and Mark Lanigan's beginnings and some of his personal battles that he faced during his life. I just thought this was the best place to kind of start. So Mark Lanigan was born in Ellensburg, Washington. And from my understanding, Ellensburg is kind of like a farming town. It wasn't really anything like super... Um, industrial or it wasn't like a city at all. It was like a farming town. That's my understanding of Ellensburg, Washington. Um, He was born on November 25th, 1964. And he was born actually with the umbilical cord wrapped around his neck. And that is, that seriously could kill a baby. Like no joke, that could actually have killed him. So Um, unfortunately, his childhood home was wrought with abuse from his mother and his father was an alcoholic, so on no front there did he win in the in the parent lottery. Both of his parents were not really there. However, he had more positive things to say about his father, that he was more caring. He didn't abuse him at all. He was just an alcoholic. His mother, on the other hand, was like the strong arm in the family, and she would come down with like a heavy fist, if you will. His parents divorced when Mark was in elementary school. And by age 12, he became a full-blown alcoholic. But not only was he an alcoholic, he was also a heavy gambler by age 12. Yeah, age 12. Can you believe that? He said in his memoir that he claimed that by that point in his life, he was reviled as the town drunk before I could even legally drink. Very traumatic. He began using drugs heavily by the age of 18, having already been arrested and sentenced to one year's imprisonment for drug-related crimes. He struggled severely with alcoholism and a heroin addiction in the 90s and early 2000s. 
Mark was always longing for a sense of adventure and a sense of purpose in his life. And his means of having that kind of adventure was with the screaming trees. It allowed him to kind of live the life that he always wanted to live because, as you can imagine, growing up in a farming town like Ellensburg, Washington, you don't have a lot of outside communication with anybody else. It's mostly kind of like the small town feel of there's like a thousand people that live in your town and everyone knows everybody's business and things like that. And so he wanted to branch out and just be more of this kid that suffers from a tumultuous household and addiction at age 12. So he wanted something more for his life. He he really had that vision and he went for it. And so the Screaming Trees was kind of his way to get out of that situation that he found himself in. So heroin addiction, yeah, heroin was his drug of choice primarily. And it got him to a point where in 1992, during a tour with the Screaming Trees and Allison Chains was also there with the Screaming Trees during that tour, um, he had a blood infection. He acquired this blood infection from the heroin needles and his arm became so badly infected that the doctors had to consider amputation. Um, in his memoir, he said that he was really close a couple of times to amputation that the doctors would say, yeah, we, we need to cut your arm off from the shoulder down. There's no saving this. Um, but luckily enough, the swelling went down and it got better over time. So he didn't have to amputate. But whew, can you imagine? That's just one of the costs of heroin use. And did that stop him? No, absolutely not. That did not stop him. But that's what he was dealing with. Um, the night, though, that he went to the hospital to deal with the possible amputation of his arm, Lane Staley was there with him. And like I said, you know, Allison Chains were on tour with Screaming Trees. And so there was a point where Lane Staley would go on on stage with the Screaming Trees during that concert when Mark was in the hospital and Lane played and he sang some Screaming Trees songs. It's kind of really interesting if you've never seen that before. Um, there's some clips on YouTube that I found that I thought was really fascinating to see because it's not likely or usual that you would find other grunge artists sing other grunge artist songs. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, at least from my knowledge, I haven't really seen a whole lot of crossover happening like that. So that's just kind of a special moment. Um, so after the Screaming Trees kind of broke up at some point here, he became homeless for a period of time and he entered rehab in 1997. He actually credited Courtney Love, who was the widow of Kurt Cobain, and I think we all have the same sensibilities about Courtney Love and what we all think of her, the nasty woman. But, you know, he credits Courtney Love for helping him get into rehab. He said that she paid for a year of his rehab and he credits her with saving his life. So, of course, he was best friends with Kurt Cobain, and I'll get into that um, in just a moment here. So, after his first stint in rehab, he entered a halfway house, and he was given a job looking after Duff McKagan of Guns N' Roses, his house. So, he was kind of like looking after the house, if you will, just kind of hanging around, you know, doing whatever. Duff McKeon's a really cool person as well. He has his own struggles with addiction and he overcame all of that. And so Duff is no stranger to that. And so he's very open, I think, honestly, with helping other musicians kind of find themselves. And so I think that was what that whole thing was about there, that Mark went into Duff McKagan's house to like look after the house. You know what I mean? Unfortunately, Mark relapsed in 2004 and he briefly went into a coma due to that relapse. 
Um, afterwards, he supported himself by painting television sets, and he entered rehab again in 2006. Um, and as of 2020, he had been sober for over a decade, but unfortunately, he passed. But like I mentioned before briefly, he was friends with Kurt Cobain. They were very, very close friends. Because the Screaming Trees weren't as necessarily extremely popular, they didn't have like the strong fan base that Nirvana had, Mark would say that he was the one that would score dope for all of his other friends. Like he would bring Kurt Cobain and Lane Staley um, drugs all the time because he could go out and show his face and not get like bombarded with fans, that kind of a deal. So he he knew that Kurt had a problem, and actually on the day that Kurt died, Mark Lanigan apparently said that he had three missed calls from Kurt, and Kurt was leaving him voicemails. You know, back in the day, I'm dating myself here um, with this technology, because this is not a thing now, but you know back then on answering machines where the person on the other line could leave a live answering machine message, like in real time, so you could hear on the other line someone leaving the voicemail and you could hear it. That's kind of what went on there. Kurt called Mark's house and he was asking him to come over because um, Kurt was trying to hide from Courtney Love. But Mark didn't want to go over there because he didn't want to get kind of embroiled with the whole marital problems. And so unfortunately, Mark didn't go over there. Who knows what would have happened? Maybe he would have saved Kurt's life or something. I don't know. I mean, one can kind of dream, but yeah, so that's kind of what happened there. And Mark said that he kind of regretted that and he regretted ever giving Kurt drugs because he was an enabler, of course. Um, but, you know, it's only in hindsight where you think of things like that, that, of course, he would be an enabler to Kurt Cobain. He was an enabler to everybody, but so was everybody else. Everyone was enabling everyone else at that time for drugs. That's just what it was. Um, he was also friends with Chef Anthony Bourdain, as well. And poor Anthony Bourdain, he passed away a few years ago as well. Very sad. Anthony Bourdain actually encouraged Mark to pursue writing a memoir. And he was very, very passionate that Mark write a memoir. And it would be said that Mark would go to Anthony Bourdain and ask him about sections of the memoir he would write, ask for advice, like, hey, do you think this is good? What do you think about this? Should I change that? Like, Tony Bourdain was so on board with helping him and being a supportive friend. It was it was very sweet to hear the uh, the friendship between maybe unlikely friendships of a chef and a big time grunge artist. But you know what? Looking back on it, Tony Bourdain totally fit. I think with that whole scene. I don't know. In hindsight, it kind of makes sense that they would kind of bond, and it would come full circle when Mark would write an obituary for Anthony Bourdain when he passed away. So. There you go. Another big time celebrity friendship right there. And funny enough, we'll kind of end this uh, background bit on Mark on a funnier note. He had a highly publicized feud with Liam Gallagher, the lead singer of Oasis. Yeah, that happened. Can you believe, okay, that Oasis and the Screaming Trees had a joint tour together in 1996? Yeah, it's true. Um, Oasis and the Screaming Trees had the same American record label and it was a joint effort of the record label to kind of just put the two together and see what happens. It was more of like a publicized event. It wasn't as if like they wanted this tour to happen, um, but it was of their record label that they were to go on tour in 1996. And of course, at this time, Oasis was promoting What's the Story, Morning Glory, and the Screaming Trees were promoting their album Dust. It was a weird like mishmash of the two, like Britpop and then grunge coming together. It just wasn't what you would have expected it at all. 
Also on the tour, one of the openers for the tour was the Manic Street Preachers um, as well. So a really interesting like hodgepodge of artists together on that whole bill. So weird, um, but very interesting. So, all right, here's the 411 on what happened with this tour. Okay, um, so the story goes when they were first meeting each other on this tour. Noel was very nice and receptive. He said, hello, how are you? Like he made good with the Screaming Trees and with their road crew and things like that. So on their first meeting, Liam came up to the Screaming Trees and he made a bit of a joke. Okay, like this is funny, but he made a bit of a joke. Okay, so he goes up to the Screaming Trees in their face and he called them the Howling Branches. Okay, (laughs) I thought that's funny. I think it's funny. The Howling Branches, like, come on, it's funny, you know. Um, But Mark apparently said something to the effect of shut up you dumb idiot you know what I mean so like go away get out of here um so that kind of created bad blood between the two of them and of course Liam being Liam like sometimes he wouldn't even show up for the tours or he would cancel the tours because he wasn't feeling it he didn't want to go it was said that Mark challenged Liam to a fight like an actual fist fight like challenged him to a fight however Mark's account of the story is that Noel chickened out and he quit the rest of the tour so that he wouldn't have to fight Mark Lanigan. But that could be a reason, but I don't think that's the reason. I think the reason really was that Noel was the one that canceled the tour because he was fed up with Liam's crap. That's my personal opinion. So, but I just thought that was really funny. Like the howling branches, the screaming trees. Come on, it's funny. (laughs) What a memory that would have been seeing Oasis and the screaming trees and the Manic Street Preachers like come on on the same bill. Madness. Um, So that was just kind of the basic background of Mark Lanigan, just to kind of get a bit of information out there on him to kind of set the tone for the rest of the episode, because now we're going to dive into the Screaming Trees and their background now and kind of what they did. So the Screaming Trees was formed in late 1984 by Mark Lanigan, guitarist Gary Lee Connor, bassist Van Connor, those two are brothers, and drummer Mark Pickerel. Along with Alice in Chains, Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, Mudhoney, and Nirvana, Screaming Trees were part of Seattle's grunge scene in the early 1990s. And that's extremely true, of course. But Again, like I mentioned, they were kind of maybe lower on the tier in terms of popularity, mainstream popularity. Mark originally joined as the drummer, Mark Lanigan, but he later said that he was such a shitty drummer that they made me sing. The band released the Other Worlds EP in 1986, and though the band was being courted by a lot of major labels, they signed to indie record label Velvetone in 1985, and then they released their debut album, Clairvoyance, in the same year of 1986. The album was paid for completely by the Connor Brothers' parents, because of course they didn't have any money. That's what it was there. The album was a combination of psychedelic and hard rock and aboard many similarities to early grunge. In 1987, the band released their second album, and it was their first album for SST Records. It was run by Black Flag guitarist Greg Ginn, or again, Greg Ginn. That's kind of a tongue twister to say, Greg Ginn. (laughs) Um, So there you go. The second album was called Even If and Especially When. After their release of that album in 87, they began working on the American indie circuit, basically playing shows across the U.S. just to kind of get their name out there. 
Their third album was called Invisible Lantern, and it was released in 1988. And then the following year, they released their album Buzz Factory, and that was their fourth full-length album. And it was their final record being released through SST Records. So they kind of were running the gamut between indie record labels, trying, again, trying anywhere that they could to fit in and find the right fit for them. So it was, it was a struggle. Again, this was their fourth album, and they weren't really making a whole lot of waves in the indie scene and the music scene they were trying but they just couldn't really top the charts they didn't have like that number one song or that number one album to really land them in the charts just yet and things were getting a bit strenuous however it wasn't until their fifth album and finally they got into a major label at this point in time for their fifth album and this is called uncle anesthesia it was released in 1991 and it was produced by chris cornell of soundgarden all right so there you go finally now they have gotten the recognition that they have so wanted and so deserved the album included the single bed of roses which gained considerable airtime on alternative rock radio stations the song peaked at number 23 on the modern rock tracks, and it was the first Screaming Trees release to ever chart, ever. Like, ever, ever. It was the first one. And they had written five albums. Can you imagine just writing five albums and not really gaining a whole lot of traction until their fifth album? I mean, wow. Very difficult, but they pushed through. They just kept on going, kept on knowing it would happen, and they pushed on through. Barrett Martin eventually replaced drummer Mark Pickerel, and the new lineup recorded their follow-up album, Sweet Oblivion, in 92. By this point in time, grunge was really now starting to make it into the mainstream because you had Pearl Jam, Nirvana, Alice in Chains, Soundgarden. It was now becoming an extremely popular mainstream kind of thing. It wasn't just like in the indie circuit anymore. It was full-blown, major in the mainstream, so now Screaming Trees was making a big name for themselves. They were one of the very first bands to fully embody grunge and had tried for years to break into the scene, but they just couldn't. Um, this, this album, Uncle Anesthesia, really helped set the precedent for their follow-up album that really seriously did it in for them in a big way. Sweet Oblivion was the band's breakout album, and it included the singles Nearly Lost You, Dollar Bill, Shadow of the Season, and Butterfly. Nearly Lost You and Dollar Bill gained considerable airtime on rock radio stations, and while the video for Nearly Lost You became an MTV and rock radio hit by 1992 thanks to the momentum of an indie film that they were to star in. They were putting out music for this soundtrack. And the movie's called Singles. Now, some of you might remember that if you listen to my early podcast that I talked about the grunge bands because Singles was kind of an indie cult classic kind of film that talked about or was the subplot of a group of friends in the 90s in Seattle trying to understand the world around them. It was kind of like a coming-of-age film. Um, it actually starred Pearl Jam. It starred Chris Cornell and Allison Chains had a brief moment like actually in the film, but then they contributed songs to the soundtrack. And so Screaming Trees contributed songs to the soundtrack as well. And I have to say, it's a pretty decent film if you haven't seen it. Absolutely a really good soundtrack as well if you haven't even listened to that either. I would suggest either watching the film or just listening to the soundtrack, either one. So their song Nearly Lost You peaked at number five on the modern rock tracks and number 50 in the UK. And this was the band's first single to chart outside of the US. 
Sweet Oblivion sold a total of 300,000 copies in the United States. I mean, massive numbers. They had a bit of a hiatus brought on by a lot of fighting and uncertainty over the quality of the music that they were recording. The band's final album, Dust, was released in 1996, and that's when the feud between Oasis and Screaming Trees happened in that year. Dust spawned several singles, including All I Know, which is a fucking awesome tune, and Dying Days, and that peaked at number 134 on the Billboard 200, so it didn't chart that high, but in Canada, it went to number 39 on the album chart, so it wasn't bad. It was the only Screaming Trees album to chart outside of the U.S., so there you go. I mean, again, like, they were really making the waves. However, even with their popularity, they were still somewhat kind of, um, indie, in a way. Despite consistently positive reviews for Dust, the album didn't match the commercial success of Sweet Oblivion. And following the tour for Dust, Screaming Trees took another hiatus, and then the band headed back into the studio in 1999 and recorded several demos and they shopped them around to different labels, but no label was willing to take them on, unfortunately. I don't know why. I mean, I don't know. Who knows why they wouldn't want to take on the Screaming Trees, but that's just kind of what happened there. So with no luck and success in that kind of wheelhouse, the band played a few surprise shows in the early 2000s and then followed by a concert to celebrate the opening of Seattle's Experience Music Project. So they kind of were just figuring themselves out in the 2000s, trying to figure out what to do. They unexpectedly announced their official breakup, and apparently, according to the other members, this was a shock because Mark Lanigan was kind of the one that announced, if you will, the breakup of the band, and the other members were very shocked to hear that. You know, Screaming Trees was no more by the early 2000s. And, you know, I could kind of understand why, because the early 2000s was kind of a time, it was a weird time. For music, but it was also a good time because grunge was starting to take a back seat. There was post-grunge music happening like Seether and Creed, other bands like that that were kind of taking the forefront. New metal was happening, a lot of like boy bands and rap, hip-hop, pop. It was all kind of coming through and grunge was taking a bit of a back seat in the 2000s. So I could kind of understand why at this time they broke up. Um, unfortunately, that's kind of the way that the music industry went at that time. In 2021, the last year, when Mark Lanigan was asked about the 90s grunge movement, Mark had this to say about it. It's not something that was contrived or cooked up around the campfire somewhere. It just happened organically. It's hard for me to comment because there's always great new music, and there probably always will be, as long as the sun keeps shining. Very, very sweet. Very nice comment there. So that, in a nutshell was the Screaming Trees. You know, again, they struggled for a long time to get some commercial success. They had that, but then they faltered and they broke up in the early 2000s. So in between the time with Screaming Trees, Mark Lanigan was doing a bit of solo work. He had a lot of solo albums, and this is where he would also work with Queens of the Stone Age. So now we're just taking a bit of look at what Mark Lanigan's solo projects were all about here. So in 1990, Mark released his first solo album called The Winding Street, and this was released under Sub Pop. And at the time, Sub Pop was founded by members of Soundgarden, and it was home to, at the time, Nirvana and the Afghan Wigs and a lot of other um, grunge bands at the time. Mark had hinted that the album came about following a cover of Lead Belly's 
Where Did You Sleep Last Night that he was working on with Mark Pickerel, Kurt Cobain, and Kurt Novoselic. So you guys remember the MTV show, the concert that Nirvana did for MTV before Kurt passed away. And one of the most famous covers that Nirvana ever did was Where Did You Sleep Last Night? Mark Lanigan was doing a cover, that cover, with Kerr and Kirst long before, a few years before Nirvana were to ever do it publicly. Um, so that's kind of interesting that they worked on it with Mark before they did it for the MTV concert. I thought that was really interesting. Unplugged. For some reason, I forgot what it was called. MTV Unplugged. Yep, I got it. <laughs> I got it there eventually. Um, but yeah, so that's what they were doing for Mark's solo album. The cover for Lead Belly's song was short-lived and eventually other musicians became involved in the evolution of his debut solo album. Like, this was a really well-put-together debut album, from my understanding. From these Lead Belly sessions, a version of Where Did You Sleep Last Night actually appeared on The Winding Sheet. Kurt Cobain also supplied backing vocals to the song Down in the Dark. And, uh, yeah, interesting there. So if you hadn't or haven't heard of that song on there down in the dark or you haven't listened to that solo album i i would check it out to be honest you really can't go wrong with mark lanigan's music you can't I, in my opinion you really can't go wrong um the majority of the album was recorded with pickerel on drums mike johnson on guitar steve fisk on piano and organ and jack Andino on bass now his second solo album was 1994's whiskey for the holy ghost i love that title whiskey for the holy ghost Wow, so good. Um, this was more of a cohesive recording with songs The River Rise, Kingdoms of Rain, Riding the Nightingale, and Beggar's Blues. This took nearly three years to make, and the album came close to not seeing the light of day because Mark was dead set on throwing the master tapes into a pond outside of the recording studio, but he was stopped, thankfully, by producer Jack Endino at the last moment. In 1995, Mark appeared on Mad Season's only album called Above, and Mad Season is the supergroup that was formed in 1995 by Lane Staley of Alice in Chains, Mike McCready of Pearl Jam, Barrett Martin of Screaming Trees, and John Barker Saunders of The Walkabouts. If you, for some reason, have been living under a rock and have not heard of Mad Season or listened to any of their songs or the album, you really need to. I, I know I've been recommending, like, all the songs on this one, but I'm telling you. I'm telling you, Mad Season is just one of those supergroups. They were so good. Um, it was mostly formed because Mike McCready wanted to help Lane Staley get sober. Mike McCready was dealing with a lot of drug abuse as well, and so he was, at that point, trying to get sober, and so he thought that by bringing Lane Staley, who was in the throes of addiction heavily at that time, bringing him in would help him, but it unfortunately didn't, so that's why they only released one album and they didn't last that long. Mark Lanigan appeared on Long Gone Day and I'm Above on the record. And Mark also appeared on stage at Mad Seasons concerts to perform the songs. After Lane left the band, Mad Seasons began work on a potential second album featuring Mark as the primary vocalist, but it never happened. So a couple years went by and 1998 saw Mark's third album called Scraps at Midnight. And then his fourth album was released the year later in 99. The album features covers of songs by prominent folk, R&B, and punk artists such as Tim Harden, Booker T, and the MGs, 
the country icon Buck Owens, as well as friend Jeffrey Lee Pierce of Gun Club. Mark stated that Jeffrey Lee Pierce was one of his early musical heroes and got him interested in making music. So now that all kind of came together nicely that he was working with one of his heroes. I always like that when that happens. In 2001, he released his fifth studio album called Field Songs, and the album featured Duff McKagan as well as major contributions from Soundgarden bassist Ben Shepard. The next studio album, which is I think his most popular and most famous album, is called Bubblegum that released a few years later in 2004. He was joined by a lot of famous musical friends. Like, this is like almost a collaborative album, if I must say so. It's mostly collaborative aside from solo. It's madness to me. So the musical artists that were featured on Bubblegum were PJ Harvey, Josh Ohm, and Nick Olivieri of Queens of the Stone Age, Greg Dooley of the Afghan Wigs, Twilight Singers, Dean Ween of Ween, and Duff McKagan and Izzy Stradlin of Guns N' Roses. Whew, that's a lot of names and a lot of people working to get that album the best that it possibly could be. It was his most positively reviewed solo album that he had ever done to date. At this point in time to date, Bubblegum is his best. So I would probably say if you want to listen to a solo album to get the feel for what he did solo, listen to Bubblegum. Absolutely. The album reached number 39 on the Billboard Top Independent Albums chart. Mark's seventh solo album, Blue's Funeral, was released a long time later in February of 2012. Josh Ohm, I hope I'm saying his name right, Josh Ohm, Elaine Johannes, and Martin Lenoble contributed to the creation of that album as well. So again, like during this time while he was creating solo albums, he did Screaming Trees and then he was filtering in a little bit with Queens of the Stone Age. That's why Josh Ohm was prevalent on a couple of his solo albums there. Mark then released a five-track EP entitled No Bells on Sunday in the U.S. on July the 29th, 2014. And his next full-length album was Phantom Radio. This was released in 2014, and it was similar in sound to Blue's Funeral. And then he released a couple more albums um, until 2020. So his last three solo albums were Gargoyle in 2017, Somebody's Knocking in 2019, and the last album he ever did is Straight Songs of Sorrow in May of 2020. And that's the last that we have of his solo work that we'll ever have. Kind of the last part here that I wanted to talk about, because it wouldn't be a Mark Lanigan episode if I didn't talk about his work with Queens of the Stone Age. I I love Queens of the Stone Age. I was really, really hip on them when they were um, coming into the scene, like Era Vulgaris, of course, Songs for the Deaf. I mean, absolutely amazing. Absolutely amazing. Even like Clockwork. I thought that album was great, too. Um, so he just became friends with Queens of the Stone Age and kind of just slid right in there at the right time. So... Mark's first appearance on Queens of the Stone Age was on the album Rated R. He sang lead vocals on In the Fade and background vocals on Leg of Lamb, Autopilot, and I Think I Lost My Headache. Rated R became a commercial success and became the first Queens of the Stone Age album to top in the chart. Shortly after the release of his solo album Field Songs, Mark became a full-time member of Queens of the Stone Age officially. He appeared on the 2002 album Songs for the Deaf and he sang leads on tracks Songs for the Dead, Hangin' Tree, Songs for the Deaf, and God is in the Radio. The album became the band's big breakthrough album and it peaked at number 17 on the Billboard 200 and it was certified gold. That album for sure. 
is like a masterpiece of an album front to back. He also toured in support of the album over the next two years. The album received two Best Hard Rock Performance Grammy nominations for the singles No One Knows and Go With The Flow. In 2005, Mark released his last album with Queens of the Stone Age called Lullabies to Paralyze. That was kind of hard for me to say. Lullabies to Paralyze. I got it. (laughs) Uh, Mark sang lead vocals on the first track of the album called This Lullaby. The album was delayed during 2004 because some changes to the lineup. Most notably, bassist Nick Olivieri was fired and Mark went on tour to support his new album, Bubblegum. So that's why it took a bit of time for everything to kind of come together. Mark said this of Queens of the Stone Age. My relationship with these guys is one of the most satisfying that I've had. It's great to play with, especially my best friends. And then when he was asked about the difference between Screaming Trees and Queens of the Stone Age, he said this. It's all rock and roll to me. A band is a band. They're really not that radically different. It's all rock music. Mark would continue to collaborate with Queens of the Stone Age after leaving the band for a couple more times throughout the years, but not a whole lot. In 2007, he appeared on their album Era Vulgaris, contributing background vocals to the track River in the Road. And then in 2013, he appeared on the album Like Clockwork. He co-wrote the song Fairweather Friends, and he contributed background vocals to the track If I Had a Tale. And that was the last that we see of Mark with his work with Queens of the Stone Age. So... He led a very fruitful life. You know, he made a lot of friends in the music industry, but outside of that too, he made a lot of friends and everyone that I've seen, like they're pouring out love and tributes to him throughout the last couple days, sharing their support and love of him. It was, uh, it was, it was, it was nice to see, you know, so many loving messages about Mark and people sharing their fond memories of who he was as a person. I mean, you know, again, I I didn't know a whole lot about Screaming Trees. They kind of flew under the radar for me for a very long time. Um, but I knew of them. I, I knew of them for sure. It's just It just was one of those bands that, again, flew under the radar for a very long time. And it wasn't really until I was face-to-face with Mark Lanigan when, again, Allison Chains were inducted into um, the Founders Awards for Mopop Museum of Pop Culture in uh, Seattle, where he did that cover of Nutshell. And I have to say, seriously, I... You need to listen to that. Mark did his due diligence and he sang that song beautifully. And that was really my first main introduction into who he was as a person and his singing abilities for the first time, truly. Um, And since then, I've been kind of here and there listening to a few of their songs and some albums. And I have to say, they're extremely underrated. They're so good. And that's why I wanted to do my due diligence and do an In Remembrance episode to Mark Lanigan because he shouldn't be forgotten. He was one of the founding voices of grunge music that was so pivotal in the 90s. He was right there in Washington when it all happened. He was friends with all of them, and sure, while he had his demons to battle, not only with heroin but and, and alcoholism, but his, his home life too, his parents, trying to get sober time and time again, and then he finally remained sober for a long enough period, only for him to die not long ago. Very, very, very sad. And he was only 57 too when he died. That's very young. That's too young. But I suppose for the life he led, I suppose it's a miracle he survived that long, so... I guess we can maybe look at it that way. Um, But the last bits of information I just wanted to share was in March of 2021, he was hospitalized with severe COVID-19 and he almost died. He was slipping in and out of a coma for several months. It led to him going temporarily deaf and being unable to walk. 
And in that time, he wrote a memoir about his time, his battle with COVID. He thought he was going to die. Like, it was really close to him dying. But, you know, thankfully, he lived out another year, practically another year of his life that he, he survived that. So at this point in time, it's still unknown of what caused his death. Um, people can speculate all they want, but we still don't really know. We, ha we don't know at this point in time. Um, Mark Lanigan actually lived in Killarney, Ireland. And I hope I said that right, Killarney. He lived in Ireland with his wife. He he's been living there for a very long time, actually. Mark Lanigan, I didn't talk about this, but his ancestry, from what I remember, is English, Irish, and Scottish. So pretty much just kind of different shades of white. You know, I'm sure he really found some kind of attractiveness about Ireland and he wanted to live there. So he died at his home in Killarney, Ireland on the morning of February the 22nd of this year, and he was 57. So that was kind of all I really wanted to say about Mark Lanigan. Again, I didn't really go in depth about the music necessarily because I wanted to more so talk about him and put his story out there if you've never heard of him before or if you have but you didn't really know a lot about him because I have to say, researching his story and who he was as a person, it moved me. It moved me deeply to hear about his upbringing, his background, what he endured and suffered and what he went through and the strong person that he became you know, in the second half of his life. Very, very, very sad. He seems like a very good guy, a very nice man. You know, he had that kind of rough, ragged, Wild West kind of voice, very deep. You know, that's why I mean like his voice is very haunting and it resonates with you. You will not forget. You will not forget him if you ever hear him, even once. You will not forget him. It's very, very hard to forget his voice. Get to know him a little bit more through his music. I think it's quite sad that sometimes, not always, but sometimes, we only really take the time to learn about these people after death and not while they're here, unfortunately, because you think that everyone has all the time left, but then one day they don't. Thank you for listening to this episode. I hope that you enjoyed and that you learned about something that you never knew before. Yeah, listen to any of the Screaming Tree songs or his own music or I'm going to leave it there. I hope you guys have a great day. I'll see you guys next week with another episode of On The Mix. Talk to you guys later. Bye, guys. Bye.